Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll discuss the Israel-Hamas war, including the political reaction in Washington and Western capitals more generally, and the Biden administration's strong support for Israel in particular. David, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. We exchanged a day after the Hamas attacks against Israeli civilians, and again about a week later. A lot has happened, though, in the meantime. And I thought I would just open by having you reflect on the past month. What has surprised you? What has given you hope? And what has given you cause for concern? Well, it's it's a heartbreaking situation, a terrible human tragedy of all kinds. Of, of course, it opened with this terrible atrocity against Israeli civilians, 1,400 dead, rape, sexual abuse, torture of all kinds, and, and of course, ma- mass abduction. It predictably led to a war in which people in Gaza are suffering terribly. I, I sort of think that there's a moral obligation not to start wars that are going to predictably redound on your own people. How, how else was this going to go? So you now have many thousands dead, some of them fighters, some of them not. You have tens of hundreds of thousands of people who are out of their homes. There's apparently 15% of the housing stock of Gaza has been wrecked. I'm not clear when how people return to any of this. Water supplies, electricity, it's a hard place to live. It's, it's, it's dry and stony. So terrible, terrible suffering. It does look like, I'm no military expert, it does look like the Israeli forces are closing in on the central command post of the Hamas leadership underneath the hospital. And whether that's a protracted siege, of course, I'm not going to make any, any predictions. We are moving also to a protracted political problem, which is there's going to have to be some way to govern Gaza when this is all over. It's pretty hard to imagine what that is going to look like. And uh, it's also unclear whether there is a continuing effort to chase down because Hamas doesn't just live inside Gaza. Hamas has a presence all over the region. It's got a uh, presence in Qatar. And as we've now seen, it's got a presence in the cities of the West, including in cities in Canada. Yes, that's a good segue to my, my next question. When we last spoke, we discussed the pro-Palestinian protests and rallies in Canada and elsewhere. In the ensuing month, not only have these demonstrations become larger and more aggressively anti-Zionist, but we've witnessed growing acts of intimidation and violence towards Jews, including in Canada. As a, a liberal and a pluralist, David, I've struggled to come to terms with these developments. So let me put it to you. How should we think about the tensions between affirming the rights to assembly and expression on one hand and ensuring that our Jewish citizens are safe from threats and intimidation on the other? Can I evade that question and answer a completely different but related question? Of course. Uh, you know, one of the reasons this situation is so intractable, if, if what you had in the streets of Toronto was marching north on University Avenue, a pro-Palestinian march where people are peacefully or in an or- orderly way 
showing placards and demonstrating their point of view. And in the southbound lane, there's the pro, pro-Israel march behaving equally politely and respectfully. Then you would see this, this you could imagine how this d- difference, however big it looks, gets mediated. But the, the problem is, is that these pro-Palestinian marches in Canada and other places take the form of violence. And I, and my own fear is that the method of the protest reveals more about the content of the protest than any of the slogans. That is, the, the violence is the message. Yes. And so it's pointing to the intractability of this problem because what you have are people for whom, look, uh, the violence obviously isn't working. The violence has not worked. I mean, you, how far back do we want to go? Palestinian violence failed them in the time of the Second Intifada. It failed them at the time of the First Intifada. It failed them in 1947-49. It failed them in 1935 in the pre, um, under the British mandate. At, at some point, you would realize politics is the answer, not violence. But the violence is so intoxicating, and especially for critics of Israel in the West. You, they are called pro-Palestinian. I don't think they... I think it's the violence they love, not the Palestinians. The Palestinian interest is... Get the be- make the best deal you can, create an economic unity with Israel, free flow of people, goods and services across borders, um, mutual prosperity. That's what I would think if they were ever allowed to vote on it, most Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza would want. But there are people who find it exciting to imagine and, and Israel as a stand-in for other things they want to wreck. It's just the excitement of the wreckage. And, and it's not serious. That's why these demonstrations go on on college campuses for a week or 10 days, and then everybody forgets about it because they don't actually want to live in the revolutionary situation they're, they're recommending to others. But that's the attraction of, of the cause, and that's what makes it so hard to see how does this come to a resolution. Let's turn to politics then, and in particular, American politics. President Biden and his Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, as well as others like Senators John Fetterman and, and Bernie Sanders, have been rock solid in their support for Israel. Are you surprised, David, on how strong the administration has been? And what do you think accounts for it? Well, first, there's in some conservative circles, there's a lot of glibness about equating the Democratic Party and the liberal mainstream with the left. And and I think it has been demonstrated those are very, very different things. And uh, and I think what we've also seen is something that was, I think, evident during the Obama administration, which is um, Biden's views of foreign policy are more traditional in the Democratic mainstream than President Obama's were. I mean, President Obama has been, former President Obama has been voicing his dis- discontent with Biden's policy. And Biden is very much in the, you know, Truman, Humphrey, John F. Kennedy tradition of the party, and Obama was not so much so. But Biden's leadership has reaffirmed that uh, tr- Truman, Truman, Humphrey, JFK tradition. And that's, I think, where the party, where party has been. And I think they're benefiting from it. I mean, there's a lot of attention to the discontent on, on the margins of the Democratic Party. There are a lot of stories that show that they're suffering certain losses on their progressive edge. But what people f- keep forgetting, as they point out, is, is are, all the surveys about American public opinion indicate that in this conflict, Americans are three to one or more with Israel. That margin is growing as the war extends. And Biden has been actually executing a drift and pulling his party after him to where the American majority is, mm. toward the American center is, and away from where the American majority and the American center are not. We'll come to the politics because I think what you've done there, David, is to outline something of a contrarian view that that the politics for the administration may be better than is widely believed in, in certain political circles. But before we get there, I want to take up your comments about President Obama. 
today, November 10th, Globe and Mail columnist Conrad Yakabuchi wrote about former President Obama's recent commentary on Israel and Palestine. And, and, and as you say, how it distances him from uh, President Biden and how that is harmful for the president. Uh, Yakabuchi writes, uh, let me put it to you, quote, the former president's comments have also made it harder for Biden to hold together a fractious Democratic Party whose progressive wing embraces the Palestinian cause just as he embarks on a 2024 re-election campaign that promises to be brutal. In that respect, they play into the hands of the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, Donald Trump, unquote. What, what do you think of, that, of those comments, David? To, to what extent is President Obama's positioning uh, on these issues doing harm to President Biden and his re-election prospects? To the re-election prospects, I think very little. Because I think that these are very subtle distinctions that right. are grasped by people like like Conrad, but and and we're talking about them. I don't think they're going to be electorally significant, especially since I very much doubt that Obama will choose to make any kind of public issue about them. And I think they go to a, a lot another point, which is, you know, when Obama talks about things that are in, on his conscience, one of the things that ought to be on his conscience. And I, I, I have some inklings that it sort of is, is his lack of regard for Joe Biden was a major force in pushing the Democratic Party to nominate Hillary Clinton in 2016 and not Joe Biden. And one of the things you have to wonder about is we now have a better idea of how that would have gone if, if Obama had had more respect for Biden and had laid hands on Biden as his successor, as most presidents lay hands on their vice president as their successor, would history have taken a different turn? Now, Obama at the time would say that he did this out of deference to Obama, sorry, to Biden, because Biden had recently lost his, his son, Beau, and he was so grief-stricken that he was in no position to, but Biden didn't think he was in no position to run for president. Biden didn't think he was too consumed by grief to do it. Obama made it clear that that's the direction he wanted to go in, and he basically shouldered Biden out of the race. So there is, it, it has been a relationship with some tension in it for a long time. Attention is now. And, and as we see, you know, Biden, Biden is, he's just a more traditional Democrat. Like Obama would never have gone on a picket line. Um, uh, that, as I said, Biden is a, a labor, a liberal labor leader. He is more, probably more liberal on many domestic issues than Obama was, but more traditional, more hawkish in his foreign policy, more confident in the American purpose and cause than Obama was. I mean, Obama always had trouble with the language of American greatness. It always stuck in his throat. And, and Biden revels in it. That's his natural language. Yeah. If I could just say in parentheses, David, I was talking to a senior representative of the New Democratic Party in Ottawa this week, and I, I made this very point that yeah. It's a strength of the left that it is in search of and, and it is animated by identifying and, and addressing injustice. But at times that impulse can cause it to come to the judgment or the view that the society is sort of rotten to its core. And that is not Joe Biden. For all of the flaws yeah. that America may have, Joe Biden believes that America is fundamentally good and fundamentally a contributor to the world and global affairs, and I think that has manifested in his position uh, on Israel and on 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 Ukraine, for that matter. But I have to ask you about the politics. Uh, you outlined it a, a bit earlier, but let's take it up more directly. The common view is that the politics are bad for Biden; that that his support for Israel is harming him with key Democratic constituencies, and may even put the state of Michigan in play. Why do you think that political analysis is wrong? Look, it's not impossible that it's right. One of the things I remember from the election of the year 2000 was 
an important reason that Bush won Florida was there was a substantial, not enormous, but substantial Muslim population in Florida. And polling suggested that although historically that had been a Democratic constituency, they voted 80% for Bush in 2000 because they were repelled by Joe Lieberman being on the ticket with Gore. And the Lieberman choice may have cost the ticket Florida and thus the election. So small effects driven by these kinds of animosities can ha have an impact. Not impossible that that could, that could happen in Michigan. Not impossible. Um, but Biden's superpower has always been that he understood the limits of the Democratic left. And, and it is, I, what I would ask when people make this point, say, when you look at the Republican Party, your, the critique of the Republican Party is, is, why is this party so enthralled, all these tiny, weird pressure groups? Can't they see where the great majority of American public opinion is? What is it about them that prevents them from saying to these groups, look, you know, you, uh, you represent a slice of American life, but we're going where the big game is, not the small boutique game. Um, on the Democratic side, that's what Biden is doing. That's what he did in 2000. Um, you know, that race was not won, sorry, 2020, that was not won by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and the chase of, it was, it was won by the most mainstream person available. And he then won the election. So my background to all this is, I am not impressed by the polling that purports to show Biden in trouble in his third year. I note that Obama had many of the same polling problems in his third year, 2011. I think it has something to do about the cycle and the structure of the Democratic Party. It's not so much a personal critique of Biden. And um, I think he's in a position where he not only is going to be closer to the center than Donald Trump is, but he's going to have another secret advantage. There's some people who think that 2024 will be a less intense election than 2020. Turnout may come down. We've had some very high turnout elections. And two, uh, 2016 was high, 2018 very high, 2020 very high, 2022 quite high. Um, uh, although 2022 was not as high as 2018. There are some suggestions 2024 may see a reduction in intensity. If that's true, Biden does well with college-educated voters, with the people most likely to show up. Um, and if he's losing from the progressive edge of the party, those are from those are groups that are the least affiliated, the least committed to the political process. And you you always want, I mean, I would always trade three votes from people who show up even when it's raining for one vote for, for, uh, for someone who will not show up if it's raining. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. To the extent that these issues represent coalitional challenges for President Biden, I would submit to you that they represent broadly similar ones for Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And yet their responses have been quite different. The Prime Minister has been far more circumspect in his support for Israel and now his foreign minister is even speculating about a mediated negotiation with Hamas. What do you think explains the difference? Well, they are very, first, there are different political systems. Um, and the incentives are slightly different. That There is a bigger anti 
Israel co constituency in Canada than there is in the United States. And Justin Trudeau is more dependent on that coalition. They supported him in all his previous campaigns, whereas Biden won the Democratic nomination in 2020 without and despite those people. I think there's something else, which is Justin Trudeau, I think, is a man with certain foreign policy attitudes. But I don't think he has. I, I, my, I've been watching him since October 7th, and I think his basic view has been looking around at rancorous, clamorous oppositional group and said, what do I have to say to make everybody like me? And so his, it's just a series of pivots from one to another, uh, pleading with one group not, not to be mad at him, then pleading with another. But there's no impetus of his own. I think to the extent that he has an impetus, it's probably where Obama is. But whereas Obama has really thought about it and really cares about it, and it's central to his political persona, I, I think Trudeau is not a globally minded politician. He's very local. Even by Canadian standards, he's very local. And, and so I think a lot of this is just about, you know, what, what do I have to say today to keep this problem from my door? And then, oh, that didn't work. Well, let me think of another thing to say tomorrow. There's something else, which is I get what, why he does this, but he has this mantra that he's been using over and over again. Whenever there's an anti-Semitic outrage, this isn't Canada, he says. Well, I get what he means. He means this shouldn't be Canada. I wish this weren't Canada. I'm trying to signal... To some newcomers to Canada that this behavior, however acceptable it was in the place they came from, is not acceptable here. That, those are the things he's trying to say. That last one is maybe too fraught for him to say it as bluntly as I just said it. But obviously, this is Canada. Anti-Semitic outrages in the street, threats, intimidation, and violence. This is Canada. It is. Where else is it going on? You know, it's in, it's happening in Canada. That's so. It's part of what what it means to be to live in Canada. It's part of Canadian life. Um, and. One of the resources that Canada used to have and other such countries used to have is some way to com communicate to new arrivals. Here's how we do things here. Uh, you have to educate your daughters, whether you want to or not. You, uh, you can't use violence in the streets. You can demonstrate your freedom of assembly, but it has to be not just nonviolent, but it has to show some respect for the other people in the streets, yeah, by the, which includes things like don't leave a lot of trash behind, you know, that just because that's an attitude of disrespect to your, to your city. That's how things are done in Canada. And that's what we're trying to communicate. But Justin Trudeau has never believed that Canada as it was has anything to say to Canada as it's going to be. And in fact, one of his big attacks on Stephen Harper was Harper's attempt to make that communication. To say, here's something Stephen Harper really was saying, here's some things we do in Canada, and here's some things we don't do in Canada. And if you choose to come to Canada, you need to absorb this. Um, and that was a big issue for Justin, that, that, that the old Canada had nothing to teach the old, new Canada. The learning was all to go the other way. All the wonderful things the new Canada would show the old Canada. And it turns out that one of the things that the new Canada has to show the old Canada is violent, intimidatory anti-Semitism. And, and now he doesn't have a language to say why he doesn't think that should happen. Well said, David. I, I would just say in parentheses that one of the challenges, it seems to me, is that when Mr. Harper talked about what it meant to be Canadian, he was talking about first principles. I think oftentimes for the prime minister, to the extent to which he has that vocabulary, it mostly amounts to a list of kind of progressive political preferences, which may be a good idea or a bad idea, but they, those are not the at the core of our citizenship. We've been talking about how strong the Biden administration has been in its support of Israel over the past month. And, and I would say Washington more generally. Are there any risks, though, on the horizon, David? What could undermine the support that American politicians have given Israel in this time of need? Very shortly. We're going to move from what the technical experts call the kinetic phase of this war to a more protracted phase. And then we're going to move on to reconstruction. And then there are going to be the usual, um, the American public will tune out 
and there will be the usual wrangling and it will be expensive. And look, here's, here's some arguments we're going to have. When, as and when this settles down, there is going to be uh, a demand from the international community for considerable aid to re- rebuild Gaza. And it's hard enough to get aid to rebuild Ukraine in a war that Ukraine did not start and did not want and where its cause is just. And we're now going to see maybe some competition between claims for Ukraine and claims for Gaza. And that's going to be that's going to be an intractable issue. And there, we're going to need to find some kind of governing structure and whether there's going to be an American role. So you're going to have nor, more normal politics will reassert itself. And then you will have many more sides and factions. And what, what we're seeing right now, and this is going to be a special challenge for the year ahead, is there is no functioning majority in, in the U.S. Congress, and at least in the House of Representatives. It's very hard to get things through. We're heading toward another government shutdown, maybe next week. Congress is taking a long weekend. I, I think I think the strategy there is don't let them argue too much. The new speaker is probably waiting to the very last minute. Then he can pull a deal out of his hat and give no one any choice as to how to implement the deal. But we may well be seeing a, a government shutdown with in the middle of a war and with one Republican senator blockading military promotions and appointments. Let me put a final question to you, David. In the months prior to the Israel-Hamas war and the tensions that it's produced, there was optimism in conservative circles in Canada and the U.S. about incorporating Muslims into conservative politics on the strengths of issues like educational curriculum reform and parental rights. I've spoken to Muslims in recent weeks who are worried that those efforts have stalled and, and may actually be permanently damaged by what's happened over the past month. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, what we're seeing is this is when that it's really kind of self-blinding to talk about Muslims as a block. It's a vast number of people, many of whom are in the West precisely to escape political claims and whatever, whether they're more devout or less devout. Uh, they say, you know, when I, when I go into the voting booth, I'm a citizen. And of course, half of Muslims are women. And they, that gives them you know, certain urgent views. So I, I think one of the things we all need to be a little bit more on guard against is assuming that those who speak most ideologically on behalf of a certain kind of ultra-conservative Muslim are the real Muslims, and everybody else who just, you know, <laughs> has, has faith traditions as we all do and certain pathways, but otherwise is, you know, want, wants to make a living and raise a family and live in peace and, and not get into fights with their gay neighbors. Like, you know, and by the way, I assume that Muslims have the same share of the population who are gay as anybody else. Like, that I think what is happening is here, people claim on the right to speak to groups. And what we all need, I think what we all need from this is a little bit more skepticism about the sentence that begins with the as a comma preface, because particularly when that group is as vast and divided as Persian Canadians, uh, Iranian Canadians, you know, they may not be as keen on some of the claims that are made by the most religious groups, the most devout, the most reactionary. There, there's everybody else. And I, I think one of the reasons that, last on this, one of the reasons why certain kinds of extremist groups try to take over the public square with the violent, intimidating methods that they do is to chase everybody else out of the public square. That they create an illusion of, that, well, they can, not to know, they can create the appearance of support because they frightened other people to not speaking. And in, in Europe, the, this is often done through outright attack or even homicide, where the you know less ideological, less reactionary members of the um, Muslim minority face the threat of being killed by some of the more extreme members. And so they, they withdraw from public life. So we just have to not allow this. And, and you know, remember that in all our faith traditions, most people want to 
lead a decent life. And most people who have made the decision for a place like Canada or the United States very much want what those countries have to offer. And that includes tolerance in all kinds of ways. Well said. What a wonderful way to end today's conversation. David, I want to thank you for joining me, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Brum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation.